sitting here together sitting with you what strikes me what stands out initially is a sense of a kind of a fullness and I think not just because the room is quite full of us but uh, some way in which the quality of what we're engaged in has a way of kind of spilling out into the space between us. Beginning to occupy the territory that we might otherwise imagine as uh, something that separates us. And I'd like to speak this evening with regard to what it means to understand the end of separation. The the experience, the perception, the belief and the sense of separateness is very much at the heart of what we call dukkha, of suffering, of what it is that most deeply distresses our hearts and what both uh, drives and amplifies the, the most painful behaviors and actions and patternings that we experience in ourselves and our world. And the heart really of the Dharma, the heart of wisdom to which we seek to awaken more fully and deeply is concerned with this understanding, what it means to see through the appearance of separation. What we can notice, what perhaps stands out a little as we continue in our journey of meditation, is that some of the ways in which certain kinds of experiences appeared at the beginning, they start to appear a little different. The boundaries that initially seem kind of clear and distinct to us, perhaps begin to be a little less so. There's a softening, a blurring, perhaps even a movement towards a maybe dissolving of some of the ways in which we experience separateness, separate things, separate experiences, separation. The breath that begins is something we call breathing in and breathing out. And that's actually what the the phrase that the Buddha used, anapana, it means breathing in and breathing out. So maybe being aware of breathing in and breathing out, anapana. When we start to pay close attention to it, as we start to be more intimate with it, it stops being so much breathing in and breathing out. Although that's still happening, well, hopefully. But there's much more just a sense of a fluidity, a flow, of a ripple and change in experience that we can attune to. And the, the parts or the separation within that activity of breathing starts to feel less. We might begin with an idea of breath, as if it's that element of air that's coming into and leaving our body. And that's what we're attending to. Sometimes this is how we might practice. But as we feel more into it, we're not really feeling the air as such. We're feeling the tissues of our body in contact with it. 
And somehow that contact is arising only because of the, or that sensation is only arising because of the meeting of the air and the tissue, or the movement of our body producing it, that it doesn't so strongly evoke a sense of one thing and the other, but more of a sense of a meeting, a touching. And this shows in other places too. We, we start off probably mindfulness of body and we think body, oh yeah, it's this kind of lump, sort of solid three-dimensional sort of thing that most of it is between the pelvis and the shoulders basically. That's the body and then you've got the head attached on the top and these arms and legs waving around. We think that's body. And there's these parts, these separate parts in the way we think of body. Even the Buddha encourages us to contemplate the parts of the body. So it sounds like he's sort of on board with the idea. And yet the experience as we start to look closely is, isn't that, is it? When we close our eyes, when we're not looking at the image or the concept of body, we don't find different pieces or parts or bits sort of hanging around by themselves. What we find is something that's more of a field, that's more of a, a flow, that has these qualities to it, some of which Catherine was speaking about last night in terms of the, the elements and their primary manifestation as, as solidity or pressure, as warmth or coolness, as movement or stillness, as spaciousness or contraction. And we notice that that's actually what the experience of body is when we start to become more free of our conceiving, our ideas, our images of it. So much of the way we conceive and relate to experience in our habitual and unexamined way tends to organize and locate what's going on as events or things. Events happening to us or around us, things that we are in relationship with, pursuing, avoiding, gaining or losing. And yet sometimes we might find ourselves quite naturally and appropriately, I think, starting to question, starting to inquire into the, the experience. Is it really like that? Is that really so? We're probably all of us now at the point of refined and developed sensitivity that we can tell that we're sitting on something. You know, that we can actually notice what that's like. We might have arrived with an idea about it, but I suspect, and I'm, I'm not meaning to be sort of cynical, um, but we're probably all without maybe having those that we can actually feel what that's like. And although perhaps it's a region of our body we don't normally give so much attention to in the, the visualizing sort of thing, or maybe we do, I don't know actually, I shouldn't really comment, should I? Um, <laughs> I'm not sure I gave as much attention to my bottom before I started meditating as I do now. I can put it that way, just to own it for myself. Um, but when I say my bottom, I'll just talk about mine because I probably, you know. But you can check this out for yourself. If I bring my attention into that experience or what I'm referring to by that, what I find is a firm, or not so firm, I won't give too many details, um, but there's an experience of kind of sensory, vibratory qualities which have firmness and warmth amongst them, shall we say. But I can't really, with my awareness, even after some considerable amount of practicing at this, I can't really tell where what I'm calling my bottom ends and where I'm, what I'm calling the cushion begins. And I'm curious, you don't have to tell me if you can, but just maybe notice and see, what's that like for you? where that place of the body resting upon, and we use that image, and Catherine offered that idea, and Pascal also, I think, in the instruction this morning, earth sitting on earth, but 
as if there was one bit of earth sitting on another bit of earth. But actually what we find in the meeting, if your experience is anything like mine, and I suspect it might be, is that, oh, it's not this on that or by that or with that. It's just the meeting itself. That's actually what's there is the meeting. There isn't this meeting that. The felt experience can't really be separated out in the way our minds tend to habitually do. So that which begins as sort of distinct or sharply delineated can start to become somewhat softer, somewhat more fuzzy, blurry, slightly less clearly what we might have imagined it to be. And what we talk about, and we casually use the language at times, you know, heart, mind, body. And these languages are useful, words are useful, sure. But they're so intimate with each other. Do we? I'm sure you must be noticing this, that when we say my body, actually we're talking about something that's inhabited by our mind. And when we say my mind, we're talking about something that's manifesting through this and in this body. In so many different ways, they are so closely intermingled that the, the idea of this as two kinds of things doesn't really make sense. The Buddha spoke about the relationship between these different aspects. He, he, he said that the breath is the the kaya sankara, which is the kaya is body, the, the conditioner of the body. And sankara means something which has been put together, stuck together, we could say, if we remember that phrase, for a little while. But something that's put together, but also something which puts things together. So the word sankara is something that's been put together, but it also puts things together. That's the nature of Sankara. And the breath conditions the body. You may have noticed that uh, one way the breath conditions the body is that if we, if we didn't breathe, the, the body wouldn't be able to survive. But more than that, if we notice how when we breathe out, the body relaxes. When we breathe in, the body engages. It's affected. The breath affects the body. And the body, kaya, is known as the citta-sankara, the conditioner of the mind, the heart-mind, we call citta. That feeling, effective, sensitive and responsive organ, we could say, that we call heart and mind. The body conditions the mind. Have you noticed that the condition of your body affects your mind? Anyone notice that? Hmm. Anyone thought, oh, I'd like my body to feel a bit different? Why? Because then my mind would feel a bit different. We actually know this relationship very well, very intimately. And there's both that very ongoing and natural conditioning that goes on that the, the way the body feels affects the way the mind feels. If our stomach feels ill because we've eaten something that wasn't good for us or was you know, past its sell-by date or something, it's not just the body that doesn't feel good. The mind, much more easily and quickly, may tend towards contraction or deflation or reaction of all sorts. And so we can see, again, that ongoing conditioning in which the body is conditioning the mind. And we can quite actively use that feature in certain ways, as um, when I suggested, I think, a couple of mornings ago about raising the arms. It's really interesting. I don't know. I've seen it. quite enjoyed watching some of you at times. I do sit and watch sometimes, I have to say. What you're doing over there. Not anyone particular, generally. But sometimes you, someone putting their arm... It's quite inspiring to see that, that. But what I notice when I do this, it's not just that it keeps me awake while I'm doing it. Because it does. That, that bit works. But actually the effort taken into the body and expressed with some physical effort seems to brighten the mind. Kind of mysterious. I can't tell my mind to brighten itself. I've tried it. You might have tried it too. Probably not to my mind, but 
to your mind, I guess. You know, brighten that mind. It doesn't work. I can't do it. I cannot, by intention, get my mind to get brighter by telling it to. But the mind can tell the body, put your arms up there. Or there are other things you can do too. And then the body brightens the mind. Interesting, huh? And then, of course, the mind conditions the breathing. Because without some quality of awareness, consciousness, being present in the human system, breathing stops. These days we can keep it going with a machine. But actually, can you see the cyclic thing? There isn't one of those pieces that isn't constantly being affected by and affecting the other so that the mind, body, heart, breathing can't really, we can talk about aspects of it, but we can't really separate it out into those pieces in any absolute way because none of them could exist without the others. There's something significant about that. The idea of something separate is that it can exist without the thing it's separate from. And so we can notice that this heart, mind, body, breathing, experience is actually something with different expressions, but ultimately is unified. And that's where we start with our practice, where we give a lot of attention. And yet the Buddha invites us in his teaching to contemplate our experience and its different aspects internally and externally. And that's kind of interesting, because why should I be mindful of someone else's body, or someone else's mind, or someone else's experience? And yet the Buddha regularly enjoins and encourages us to be mindful and aware of experience internally and externally. And it's kind of interesting, again, to just contemplate, so what, what is this externally thing? What, what does it mean? Oh, it's, well, it's whatever I'm conceiving, imagining, believing to be out there. Out there. So what's out there? Outside of, we think of probably our body. We have this idea of this discrete locus over here that's the body, my body, and over there is you and your body. And uh, I sometimes find it really interesting to contemplate. So what's the insideness of this body? Because if I think about it, what one way one can think of it is that it's kind of like a hollow tube. This is basic biology. Picking up a little bit from the original sort of disc that formed a, a circle enclosing space. As Catherine mentioned last night, it actually becomes quite a long tube. It's the basic biological structure is the tube that runs down here and wiggles around a lot and then ends just above the cushion or appears to. And there's these other appendages attached to it, of course, that have some function, some use. But I tend to think, although I think that tube is on the inside, the most insideness of what's inside the tube, when I think about that, it doesn't quite feel like that's me, does it? What's on the inside of that tube? Is that you? Is that really inside? Or is that actually something I tend to think is more... No, that's outside me. Do you understand what I mean? It's like I'm a tube, but what's right through the centre of the tube isn't really part of that. Hmm. So what's most inside me feels like it's outside me in a certain way. You see? Spatially, it's inside me. But in terms of my sense of who I am, the stuff that's in there, that's not me. I tell you, when it comes out, I look at it, definitely not me. (laughs) Definitely not me. No doubt about it. But curious, isn't it? Because if if, if inside is, is me over here, maybe inside and outside are more connected than I've imagined. If there's a bit of outside running all the way through the inside of the inside. (laughs) 
I remember being uh, amused by the sort of graffiti or slogan somewhere saying something like, you know when you smell something? It's little bits of it getting in your nose. We don't think of it like that. We think, I'm smelling something, and it's something over there that I'm smelling. But no, it's not. It's little bits of it getting in your nose or in your mouth when you taste something. And it's like, oh, just a moment, I kind of like to think of myself as having a bit of distance from that, but that's actually not what's happening. That's not what's happening. When a sound arises... Have you ever stopped to pause with a sound and try and work out, is the sound happening in here or out there? Don't think about it too much if it's not apparent. But it's an interesting reflection because actually it's not really possible to tell if it's happening in here or out there. Although I've got this very clear sense of me hearing it in here, where the sound is actually located it doesn't quite fit within that paradigm of inside and outside. And the thoughts that seem so much inside and me, so intimately inside me, so intimately definitive and significant of myself, where do they come from? When I was... uh, first traveling in India, I had the, uh, for me, great joy and delight of meeting for the first time in my mid-twenties my Bengali grandmother in Calcutta. And uh, having just got into meditation and rather happy to discover that she was into meditation too, aged about 70 at the time, um, we went together to see a teacher who I was interested in, Manindra. I think Pascal might have mentioned him a couple of nights ago. And he was an important teacher for me. And I I remember having this conversation, the the three of us, these two sort of elderly Bengali, uh, I'm trying to think of the the word that they shared. They were were very sort of polite and kind of sophisticated in a simple human way. And it was very interesting for me because this was my grandmother who I just met and this was this amazing... Dharma teacher who I'd been wanting to meet for quite a while. And uh, I was just remembering that, thinking, oh, well, I don't know why I'm telling you all this, but I wanted to say something that Manindra told me that happened in that interaction. (laughs) So all of that came with it. (laughs) I know if it helps you, but it helps me to remember the the human relationships that underlie the journey. Um, and uh, Melindra said at one point in the conversation, we were talking about practice, said, you know, thoughts come from outside the mind. <laughs> I had no idea what he was talking about, to be honest, at the time. I didn't let on. And I don't know if my grandmother understood, but she didn't let on if she didn't. <laughs> thoughts come from outside the mind. One of you left, left us a note earlier, um, maybe a couple of days ago, asking about whether there were two minds, because there seems to be a mind that thinks and a mind that is kind of aware and conscious of experience, including thought. And I think you're onto something there, <coughs> just, just in case, because you were wondering in the note. I don't know who you are. Um, I think you're onto something there. But this sense of different functionings or different expressions of mind is is interesting when we come to thinking because thinking seems like something we're generating and yet if we look at the content of our thoughts how many of them are ours how many of them that feel so intimate to, to us did we come up with as original conceptions very very few most of them we learnt from someone else and actually this is useful to reflect on particularly with a lot of the ones that aren't so helpful or skillful that are critical, that are judgmental, that are um, sort of positing erroneous or delusional views of the world. Most of those we learnt from other people who learnt them from other people, who learnt them from other people. 
who learnt them from someone going back and back and back and back. But they didn't start here. They didn't start here. And so, so much of our thinking that can create the sense of, a, of a, an innerness that's separate from what's out there and these thoughts that feel so much mine and me, actually they're not. They're somebody else's. They're somebody else's thoughts in my head. That might not make us necessarily feel better about them, but it might give us a bit of space with regard to whether we have to really believe them. I mean, it's obvious when it's a jukebox thought, you know, the sort of the music running around in our mind, some jingle from an advertisement. But a lot of the other thoughts aren't that different. And I'm talking about the sort of the random thoughts that run rather than what we might choose to consciously and intentionally reflect upon. But that's a different kind of thinking, really. But again, what that says is the inner experience of our thinking world is profoundly conditioned and to the extent we could call it to a large extent created by what we call others. Those thoughts come not from here, but from all around us. And then become so intimate that we call it me in opposition to everything else. But actually, no, what they're telling us about is how our mind isn't separate from all the people whose thoughts we've absorbed and taken on, mostly unintentionally, unwittingly. That doesn't mean, of course, we don't need to take responsibility for the thoughts that are happening here. But to see that we don't have responsibility for the fact that they're arising in any ultimate sense. We might need to so far as we repeat them unconsciously or consciously, we need to take responsibility for that. But that's different, and that's something we've already spoken about and probably will come back to. But in terms of the, the non-separateness, that sense of, oh, not just my body and the contents and constituents of my body, but the very contents and constituents of my mind are not self-generated or self-created, but born from our non-separateness. So this experience of separation, this experience of feeling over here, in relationship to what I'm calling over there, it's perhaps most clear for us, or some of it, the most strong experience of it that we can have is in the sense of fear, in the sense of danger. When we feel threatened, it comes inevitably with a very strong sense of otherness. And, 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 and that's actually the, the thing we fear the most, probably, is otherness. Something that's not what I am. That's mostly what we feel threatened by. But at the same time, otherness tells us who we are, or who we believe to be, who we think we are. So we actually have a need for having other in order to know me, in order to know what I am. And that's, in terms of conventional sense of self and identity, a large part of what's going on is the attempt to separate everything out into what's me and what's not in order to know what's me and what's not. I was really struck, and maybe some of you likewise, though it's going back a few years now, I was really struck by what happened in the um, late 80s and early 90s with the um, fall of the communist uh, bloc regimes and the coming down of the Berlin Wall. And this whole otherness thing where all these peoples and countries had been other and scary and bad and dangerous and all of that suddenly became, oh, they're not that anymore. They're just like us. They've actually just become democratic and, you know, whatever that means. To some extent, anyway. And I would say... 
I was travelling in Asia, so I wasn't reading the newspaper all the time at that time. I listened to a lot of news. But I would say it was within days, but certainly within weeks of the fall of the Berlin Wall, that I started to see articles in the media about Islam as other. It was that quick that something else had to be other because we could not, as a society in the West, survive without something to be other. And when our other was gone, we found another one that quickly. And it, apart from being tragic and unnecessary, it also tells us something about the way the psyche functions. In that we need somewhere to kind of place outside of our sense of self, or me, that which we don't want to own or inhabit or include. And a large aspect of practice is the process whereby we start to include, let in, inhabit, embody, experience, feel those places, those experiences, those feelings, those sensations, those images that we would rather not. And of course, this is a challenging part of the practice. We know that. It's not easy to do this. But there's a, a process of remembering who we are, what we are. And in this use of the word remembering, it's a word that we could place in counterpoint to dismembering. When we actually take something that has a wholeness to it and cut it up, separate it out, break it into parts. And a remembering that is a, a profound healing of those places within ourselves that we've set to one side as, no, I cannot include this. And at a in a level and equally in social our societies, we see how these mechanisms play out where groups, individuals, communities are placed apart from the circle of what's held as me or as us. And the incredible suffering that that causes for actually whoever is on either side of that division. Just as there's suffering we'll find within our own experience for both sides of what happens to us when something is pushed out or set aside and apart within us. There is suffering in that place and there's suffering in the process and the very drives that lead us to do that. There's suffering there. And this we can know, we can see this for ourselves. So uh, an essential and yet profoundly challenging dimension of the practice that we are called to engage in with courage, with greatness of heart, we could say, is the willingness and the practice of turning towards and beginning to re-include, to remember the things that we have dismembered which we could also say forgotten, but that doesn't quite get what happens because that forgetting is a loss that is profound to us that is more easily illustrated by what it would be to be dismembered. Ouch. The experience of otherness is something we need to investigate in our own experience. It's not that it's a, an idea we're supposed to disbelieve, but it's a, an experience and an orientation we need to explore and understand. And it requires a trusting, a trusting of life as it is. And this is one of the fundamental qualities that we're expressing in our willingness just to sit here and meet it and to, so far as we're able, not control, manipulate, run away from what's here. 
that quality of trust is uh, something that uh, Rainer Maria Rilke speaks to. He says, We have no reason to harbor any mistrust against our world, for it is not against us. If it has terrors, they are our terrors. If it has abysses, these abysses belong to us. If there are dangers, we must try to love them. And only if we could arrange our lives in accordance with the principle that tells us we must always trust in the difficult, then what now appears to us to be alien will become our most intimate and trusted experience. How could we forget those ancient myths that stand at the beginning of all races? The myths about dragons that, at the last moment, are transformed into princesses. Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are only princesses waiting for us to act just once with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is, in its deepest essence, something helpless that wants our love. When I encountered this, uh, this text of Roka, I was struck by how the version of the story of princesses and dragons I'd always been told was that the princess was uh, captured by the dragon and you know, the, the knight in shining armour had to kill the dragon to rescue the princess. And then you suddenly think, oh, maybe that's not what was going on at all that the princess and the dragon are not actually separate in this, but they manifest according to how we relate to them as one or the other. Held separate, it's dragon. Met with love, it's princess. And so we may at times in our practice encounter the territories that are challenging, that are hard. We will, most of us, some of the time. Some of us, quite a lot of the time. At least, for some of the time. So that changes too. But to see how when we make those experiences separate or other, is somehow this is being done to me. Or I've got to somehow do it to this. In some way, or fix it, sort it, deal with it that it maintains that separateness from the experience that's actually to be contemplated, to be seen. Because it's not ultimately true. It's so painful to feel separate, to be separated, to be dismembered. So painful. So we can look at our experience in this way and see how we do it, how it happens. You know, we just talk casually about our hand doing something or our foot. And yet, where does the hand end and the foot begin? If you, if you, if you tell, you know, where is the one stopping and the other beginning? There isn't somewhere. That's kind of obvious, isn't it? They're just words we use to talk about their functionality. But the structures are connected completely. We say, but, but that's, that's all in the same body. Come on, that doesn't get us very far. But we're sitting here. And we say, it's me over here and you over there. But in fact, the medium that we say is between us, this air, isn't between us. It's not some me over here and air in the middle and you over there going on. No, no. The air is right in here, isn't it? You know that. We've been paying attention to it for days now. At least some of the time we've been trying to. And it's also right in there inside. That which is between us is inside us. And it's not just in the sort of this sort of cavity in my chest called the lungs or yours called your lungs. No, no. 
the stuff that's between us is actually in ourselves, whizzing around our body. And then we breathe it out. And, you know, we might enjoy contemplating the fact that, yeah, we're sharing this oxygen and these elements with the trees, those leaves, lovely plants, you know, providing oxygen and taking in our carbon dioxide. They are doing that, but it's a little more challenging to think, to realize that we're actually doing that with each other. We're breathing into our cells the stuff that each other was breathing out of their cells just moments before. It's like, gosh... breathing out feels like a bit more of a responsibility from that perspective and breathing in feels a little bit more like hmm, okay what's that about? am I taking you in when I breathe in? am I giving me out when I breathe out? and we're Again, picking up some of the themes and just taking a little further, we're, we're mostly space. As Catherine was speaking last night, and the shared space, that breath moves between us, moves between us. Sometimes if you're really quiet and your kind of thinking mind is kind of feeling like it's all right with not having to do too much for a little while, you might just imagine that as you're breathing in, you're not breathing in at all. But this very large bag, it's a lot bigger than the little bag in here, but this is a very large bag, it just gently squeezed, went, and it breathed out. As if you had a paper bag and you, and then you, maybe that's what's happening. Because it's not me doing the breathing. We've established that already. We've all noticed, haven't we, that the breathing keeps going and we've completely forgotten about it. It's a really useful feature of breathing. We don't actually have to do it. But we're not sort of doing it any more from here, this body, than actually maybe the universe is breathing out and these lungs inflate. And these lungs breathe out in the universe inflates and actually all of us are part of that amazing if that might be I've got no idea if that's really what's happening but it's as valid an explanation as the one that says I'm breathing and then suddenly my relationship to everything I'm sitting in is rather different isn't it Have you noticed that sometimes experiences touch you, affect you, you feel them? It's like they get in. Huh? That sense of inner, outer, it's like but something that I saw. It could be just a drop of dew, or here it would be a, a flake of snow perhaps that catches the light. And something in the heart just quivers. Huh. And it's not because I haven't seen one of those before. But somehow it's touched me. It's come all the way through this physical structure and touched something very deeply. Equally, the expressions of kindness we might see. And we might feel just deeply moved by. Or someone's very mindful taking of a step. And we feel uplifted by it. How is it that those things that are out there end up getting in here? Except that the out there and in here isn't really that real, as our mind sometimes thinks it might be. As we as we practice, as we deepen, as the sensitivity of this organ and this organism becomes more and more available because we're inhabiting it, we're supporting it, we're seeking to be awake in it. We notice that we're not just affected by, we're touched by things, but that a natural part of that being affected and touched by experience, whether it be 
of a little creature running on the lake, as Pascal's lovely image of the morning. And, and even without having been there, I can feel my heart go, yippee! I didn't even have to watch. And maybe some of you too, as a couple mentioned in the, in the group meeting. It's like, oh, what's that telling me about what's going on here? It's like there's this, this natural caring that arises in the sensitivity, in the allowing ourselves to be touched, and they're not holding that defensive, protective, boundarying sense of me and self and separateness and distance and other. Because I imagine that somehow if I let all that other in, it will overwhelm me or it will undermine me or it will just be too much. Actually, as I start to let it in, what I find is that the heart expands. That the sensitivity, the caring, the field of connection, of, of warmth, actually naturally starts to extend to recognize that it includes everything around us. It's like everything's alive. Even those things we call inanimate have their aliveness. Because we can feel our aliveness in their presence. It's like if we see something that we call not alive, but it touches me in a way that lets me know I'm alive, how can I say that it's me that's being alive and not at? That it's my aliveness, not the aliveness of this. Mary Oliver, the uh, rather wonderful poetess, she says in this poem entitled, Some things say the wise ones. She says, Some things say the wise ones who know everything are not living. I say, You live your life your way and leave me alone. I have talked with the faint clouds in the sky when they are afraid of being left behind. I have said, Hurry, hurry. And they have said, Thank you, we are hurrying. About cows and starfish and roses, there is no argument. They die after all. But water is a question. So many living things in it. But what is it itself? Living or not? Oh, gleaming generosity, how can they write you out? And as I think of this, I'm sitting on the sand beside the harbour. I'm holding in my hand small pieces of granite, pyrite, schist, each one just now so thoroughly asleep. And there's something that she's pointing to, that she's speaking to her experience and her knowing of. the aliveness and the inseparableness of all expressions of what is here. Even inanimate materiality expresses the movement (coughs) towards connection. Yeah? That might sound like a strange idea. You know, well, we know that at least warm-blooded mammals seem to like it. We're not sure about the other animals, but uh, inanimate matter? The basic property of matter at an atomic level, as opposed to a subatomic level, matter level, well, actually, it's the same, both of them. But the basic property of matter is that it's drawn to be close to other matter. We call this gravity because we're scientific in our culture, and we've explained it. You know what gravity means, don't you? It means that anything with mass attracts, it pulls towards anything else with mass. What's that expressing? I think it means that stuff wants to be close to other stuff. Because that's the effect of it. Now, the wanting might be added, seem like, well, that's, you can't really add wanting to that. But we don't know. We're only here on this planet because the planet exerts a force upon us that stops us pinging out into space. We don't, unfortunately, have enough 
mass to exert that kind of force on the planet to keep it close to us. But it does that to us. If gravity wasn't here, if this earth wasn't holding us, we wouldn't be on it. Doesn't that sound like caring to you? Because it does to me. Even the molecules want to be close to each other. And the more of them there are, the more they want to be close to them. Sounds like a party, doesn't it? (laughs) Maybe that's what's going on. We just haven't noticed. I'd like to read a poem by Liesl Mueller. And I'll give you the title at the end. Perhaps that'll be obvious why, but it involves images which, if you don't know, and I didn't before I heard the poem, refer to the, uh, the painting of Monet, the paintings of Monet. And so the poem reads, Doctor, you say that there are no halos around the streetlights in Paris. And what I see is an aberration caused by old age and affliction. I tell you, it has taken me all my life to arrive at the vision of gas lamps as angels, to soften and blur and finally banish the edges you regret I don't see, to learn that the line I called the horizon does not exist, and sky and water so long apart are the same state of being. Fifty-four years before, I could not see Rouen Cathedral is built of parallel shafts of light, of sun. And now you want to restore my youthful errors, fixed notions of top and bottom, the illusion of three-dimensional space, wisteria separate from the bridge it covers. What can I say to convince you? The Houses of Parliament dissolve night after night into the fluid dream of the Thames. I will not return to a universe of objects that don't know each other, as if islands were not the lost children of one great continent. The world is flux, and light becomes what it touches, becomes water, lilies on water, above and below water, becomes lilac and mauve and yellow and white and cerulean lamps, small fists passing sunlight so quickly to one another that it would take long streaming hair inside my brush to capture it, to paint the speed of light. Our weighted shapes, these verticals, burn to mix with air and change our bones, skin, clothes to gases. Doctor, if only you could see how heaven pulls earth into its arms, and how infinitely the heart expands to claim this world. Blue vapor without end. And the poem is entitled, Monet Refuses the Operation. So what might it be for us to just for a little while suspend some of the views and certainties we have about what it means to be what we are and the way we may conceive, believe or at times indeed experience what this is as separate from everything else around us. To be open to receive what comes to us as it comes. To let it move on. But not having gone around us. But having passed through us as it does. We perhaps come to see, come to sense the the quality of unobstructed openness. The profound vulnerability that is at the same time indestructible by its very ungraspableness, its very complete permeability. 
this conscious heart, mind, body, life, breathing, world. finish with a quote from Black Elk, a holy man of the Ogalasu people from his book Black Elk Speaks. He writes of his experience. Then I was standing on the highest mountain of them all, and round about beneath me was the whole hoop of the world. And while I stood there, I saw more than I can tell, and I understood more than I saw. For I was seeing in a sacred manner the shapes of all things in the spirit and the shape of all shapes as they must live together as one being. And I saw that the sacred hoop of my people was one of many hoops that made one circle, wide as daylight and as starlight. And in the center grew one mighty flowering tree to shelter all the children of one mother and one father. And I saw that it was holy. (coughs) So let's sit a few moments together. And I mean together. Because we are. So may we all here in our practice together and in our lives may we come to know deeply the profound non-separateness of life of which we are inextricably apart. for our own welfare and for the welfare of all beings. For the welfare of all of life.
So thank you for your presence here and for your practice. If the bell could be rung at five minutes to nine, I'll have the sitting just after nine o'clock. And uh, please continue. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.